good to see everybody back again tonight. We know we like seeing everybody come back again at the evening services, but one thing we always have to keep in mind, it's commanded from God that we be here, that we be here when the elders see fit that we're here to worship. I know one thing that I have learned from doing a sermon this morning and doing it again this evening, I have a newfound respect for Brother Randy, all the preachers that do this full time. Preparing the material, trying to get stuff all ready in one day, but the biggest thing is trying to remember what I was supposed to say this morning and what I'm supposed to say tonight and not mix the two together. And a lot of times it can be very difficult, but I've tried to keep it straight the best that I can. This morning we started looking, or at least our sermon, we started looking at a religious group that sometimes seems to be shrouded in a lot of mystery, at least in our minds, that a lot of people in the world don't really know a whole lot about, and that's the Amish. You know, some of the beliefs that they have seem to be very quirky, at least from our viewpoint. A lot of times it's simply because we don't understand it. But what we really want to be looking at, and we started on this morning, is how do those beliefs that they have compare to Scripture? What does it say in the Bible? Are they right or are they wrong? But more importantly, we want to look for areas that we can learn from, things that we can apply to our lives to make us better Christians. That's the point of all these sermons. Anytime you hear a sermon, we should be looking for something that can make us a better Christian. This morning we started briefly by looking at the history of the Amish. We saw that they, they broke from the Catholic Church during the whole Protestant Reformation movement back in the 1500s, and they suffered some very severe persecution because of their rejection of infant baptism within the church. There was a leader that emerged within this movement by the name of Minnow Simmons. And because of that, this, this group in this movement basically got coined the name the Mennonites. After several decades went by, there started being a rift more or less, more or less within the Mennonite church. A new leader started to emerge from a group that wanted to actually reform the Mennonites back to what they felt their core belief should be. This man by the name of Jacob Amon. Now the men that followed, or the men, women, whoever that followed Jacob Amon, they eventually got coined the term the Amish. So that's where the Amish come from that we've been talking about so far. We then started looking at some of their core basic beliefs, where, how these things compared to the Bible. A lot of things that we noticed this morning is that many of their beliefs, they're either based on some kind of scripture that maybe is taken out of context, possibly maybe misinterpreted, or it's based on some kind of biblical principle. And we looked at it, a lot of these beliefs are very admirable. The fact that they don't use automobiles, the reasons behind that, why they don't have electricity in their homes, it's very admirable, the reasons why. But the one core thing we needed to pull from that is these things are dictated by their church. And the Bible simply gives us no authority to dictate social and secular matters from the church's pulpit. The Bible does not talk about these matters, and so the church has to stay out of those situations. Another thing that we looked at is we looked at the creed book that more or less has been created within the Amish church, what they refer to as the Ordnung. Now, the Ordnung is the collection of writings that the Amish leaders felt that they had to create in order to, to have unity throughout their autonomous districts around the world. And the one key thing that we pointed at is that they were looking for unity, or even in us today in the Lord's church, if we're wanting unity among autonomous congregations, we need to go no further than this right here. If you follow the scripture, if you follow the Bible, there will be unity throughout the Lord's church. Well, tonight what I want us to do is I want us to continue looking at some of these beliefs that the Amish have. And I want us to keep comparing them to the scripture, find out are they right or are they wrong. 
But then I want to spend a little bit more time towards the end of the lesson actually focusing on some things that the Amish are doing right and that they are very, very good at and see what we can pull from that to learn in our lives to make us better Christians and followers of Christ. You know, one of the main reasons, and we kind of mentioned it this this morning, that a lot of people kind of look at the Amish with an eye of mystery and suspicion, and we don't really know what they're doing. It's, it's almost like a fairy tale world is because they purposely are trying to keep themselves segregated from the world. I want to go into a little bit more detail tonight than we did this morning. A lot of this segregation and this, this attempt to separate themselves from the world, it's seen in almost everything they do, the way they dress, their avoidance of technology within their communities. They actually point to the scripture for their justification, they say, on why they're supposed to be doing this. They believe it's actually commanded from God that they keep themselves separate from sinners throughout the world. Open up your Bibles tonight. I want us, I want us to look at several of these passages, and, and let's see how, what the scriptures actually say about it. So turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, this is one of the passages that they use for their justification for avoiding social interactions outside of their communities. Romans chapter 12, let's start reading in verse 1. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So looking at verse 2 here, it does say that we are not to be conformed to the world. And so the Amish take that one, that one phrase, that one sentence right there, and they're physically removing their bodies. They're removing their presence away from others within the world, and that's their way of not conforming to it. But we have to continue reading that verse. We can't take that out of context. The second part of verse 2, it says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The way that the Lord intended for us as Christians to not conform to the rest of the world is we have to have a change in our mindset. We can't have the same mindset that the world has. We have to have our minds focused on what God wants us to do. When we do that, when we have a change in our mindset, our actions are naturally going to reflect that. What the Amish have done is they've almost done it backwards. If they've gone about the actions of removing themselves and then allowing that to have a change in their mindset, the way the Bible talks here, it's done the other way around. So when you look at this verse that the Amish used to justify their separation from the world and, and their complete removal from society, I believe they're completely misinterpreting this verse. There's another one I want us to look at. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, let's begin reading in verse 14. I'll actually read through the end of the chapter. It says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? But what, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be a God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Looking specifically, really, at verse 17 in that, it says, the Lord says to come out from among them and to be separate. 
if you look at that passage and, and look at these, these verses that we've read together there, it's very easy where you can see some people to interpret that to you physically remove yourselves. It says to come out from among them, be separate from them. But the scriptures teach us you're not to pull passages out, sections of verses out, and look at just those. The Bible is a complete whole. You are to look at the Bible as a, as a whole set. If you continue looking at other passages throughout the Bible, the thing we see is the scriptures simply do not teach a removal of ourselves from society. One of the things, and many of you may have already been thinking of this, is the simple example of Jesus where in Mark chapter 2, he's sitting eating with sinners. And he says in verse 17 that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those that are sick, that he did not come to call the righteous, but he came to call the sinners to repentance. Jesus spent time with those that were not Christians. He spent time with sinners. I mean, the Bible simply does not tell us we have to remove ourselves from society. It actually gives us several examples quite the opposite from that. You know, one of the reasons I spent a little bit more time than I probably had to this morning going through the history of the Amish, explaining exactly where they came from, how they got to where they're at today, is I really wanted to touch on it right here. If you look at the way they formed, the persecution they went through, I said that many of them, were, if they, they were actually hunted down, and if caught, they'd be burned at a stake, they'd be beheaded. A lot of it because they simply refused infant baptism. Because of that, this group was constantly on the run. They were trying to stay away from society. The, there was a lot of distrust within the government. Even after their pilgrimage to the United States, we talked about a little bit that, that they're a group, they're a very peaceful group. They denounce violence of any type. Because of that, when wartime came around with the United States, Here's a group that descended from Germany, were fighting with the Germans, that they refused to go and fight. They speak a German dialect. The government actually spied on many Amish communities because of that, that they, there became a large distrust between the government and these communities. That, at least from what I have studied, seems to me why there is such a separation and a removal of themselves from society is they simply don't trust society. There's so much evil that has been done to them that the world has done is they want themselves removed. And so when they go to the, the scripture and they're looking for something, it seems, to justify their reason for being removed from society. Now, when you go to the scriptures with a preconceived notion of what you're wanting to find, chances are you're going to find it. You can almost find anything in the Bible if you have your mind set on what you're looking for. We have to be very careful about that today. When we go to the scriptures, we have to go with an open mind. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through these words and tell us what the Lord is wanting us to hear. If we go into it with our mind already made up of what we want to believe, we're going to find things and we're going to misinterpret the scriptures. And I believe that's exactly what the Amish have done in this instance. Very quickly, I want to look at a few of the, the practices of worship that the Amish do during their actual worship services. I'm going to move fairly quickly through these and not spend a lot of time on them simply because as I mention them, it's going to be, I believe, fairly, fairly easy to notice the inaccuracies within the scripture because a lot of these we've studied before in the past. Typically within an Amish district, I know if, if many of you have, have noticed, I've used the words district and congregation several times interchangeably today. To the Amish, they're the same thing. So when I say a district, that's what we would think of as a congregation today. So within an Amish district, typically what you're going to see in terms of a roles within their church, you're going to see traditionally one elder, two preachers, and one deacon. 
Now, when, I, when you hear those words, elders, deacons, and preachers, what they use those roles for is exactly what we use them for. They are the exact same thing that we see them. The elders, the bishops, they are the leaders within the congregation. The preachers, the ministers, they're the ones who physically stand up and bring the lesson. The deacons are the ones that are to be carrying out the more day-to-day task, the more hands-on features that, that their congregation needs to have done. So, so they should be fairly easy to understand from our viewpoint. Those positions, at least from an Amish viewpoint, they're there for life. Once you take one of those positions, the only way you come out of that position, at least with and still be in a right condition within their church, is death separates you from that position. You are there to stay. Young men, when they are baptized into the Amish church, there is an understanding that if you are asked to take one of these positions, you will willingly accept it. It's understood that you do not turn down an offer to take one of these positions. There is no formal training that they go through for these positions. It's pure personal study, study with their families as they're growing up as children. There is no pay for these positions. These are all positions that are done basically free of charge. They have separate jobs on the sides that they use to to provide for their family. One thing that's actually very interesting about this, the way that they choose the men to be in these positions. What they'll do is they will, if a position comes open, they will ask the congregation for nominations to actually nominate men within their district, within their congregation. Once they have all the nominations, at that point they will then cast lots. That they will draw straws, they'll do something to allow chance to decide who is going to fill that position. If we look at the Bible, passages like 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. When we look at the qualifications for elders and deacons and, and whatever these positions are going to be, the Bible always gives the indication that this is a position that a, that a man wants to have. It is not a position that he is thrust into involuntarily. And I think it's easy to understand the difficulties and the issues that can arise by putting a man in, in say, the position of a bishop or of an elder, and they don't really want to be there. I mean, there, there's a lot of issues that can come from that. There's another thing that's interesting I don't know if you noticed, and I said how many bishops, or how many elders they have within their congregation. They have one. That's it. And I, I don't think it's very hard, again, to understand the problems that you can have coming from that. If you have one man that has the final say-so on all decisions, if that man wants to, can easily become deceptive, corrupt things very quickly. And a lot of Amish congregations have suffered because of that, because you have a man in that position who's there to stay who will not come out, he has the final say-so in a lot of stuff that goes on. The Lord has put a structure in place in his church that every time we see in the scriptures where it's talking about the elders of a congregation, a good example would be 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4, through 4, if you want to go and look at that at some point. But there's always a plurality when it comes to elders. God designed his church so that there would be checks and balances in place. Because of that, the Amish communities a lot of times have suffered a lot because of it. Services, when they actually hold services... They're held every other Sunday. To be honest, I haven't found anywhere in the scripture where they even point to for justification for that. I've heard one person say, at least I read in the book somewhere, that different, two different congregations may share a preacher. And because of that, he will go back and forth on alternating Sundays. Therefore, they meet every other Sunday. I don't know if that's true or not. But they meet every other Sunday. On their off Sundays, when they don't go to worship, it's traditionally they spend it with their family and their friends visiting with each other. No work or anything is done on that day. Communion. Their communion is, is very similar to what we see our communion today. is unleavened bread. 
fruit of the vine, it's taken twice a year. It used to be taken once per year, and some of them felt that wasn't often enough, so they moved it to twice a year. Baptisms, and this is the one that, that really kind of surprised me. Baptisms are done every other year. One time every other year. That's it. If somebody in their community says that they want to be baptized, that they want to become a member of the Lord's church or what they call the Lord's church, you have to wait until the next quote-unquote baptism service that they have, and it's held every other year. You don't go immediately and baptize the person. Now, if you notice in the invitation this morning, I mentioned that they strongly believe that if you are not a baptized child of God, you have no hope of going to heaven. So in my mind, it doesn't make sense where, where you see, okay, if somebody is not baptized, they want to be, you make them wait a year and a half, what if they don't live that long? You've basically now condemned them to hell because of that. And, and like I said, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail looking at a lot of scriptures because I think the inaccuracies in a lot of these is very evident. So what we've spent our time on this morning and up to this point this evening is really looking at issues within the Amish church of where what they believe does not coincide with the scripture. From here on, though, I want us to start looking at things that, that they are really good at, that they completely agree with the Bible, and things that I think at times they're better than we are at, that I want us to be able to learn from. One of the first things, and, I, and you may have noticed this already, at least from some of the things we've talked about, it seems like everything that is done within an Amish community, no matter what decision it is, even down to, like we said, riding horse and buggy instead of having a car, not having telephones in their homes. Everything is done with God in mind. It's what would the church want them to do? What would the scriptures want them to do? Now, as we've looked at a lot of their beliefs, maybe misinterpretations, it may not be accurate towards the scriptures, but you have a group of people here that has willingly given up almost any convenience or amenity they have in their life because they feel that that will help them to be a quote-unquote better Christian. What about our lives today? Am I willing to cut off the electricity in my home if I feel it's bringing temptations into my house? Am I willing to turn my TV off if I feel it's causing problems for my Christian life? Am I willing to get rid of my car sitting outside because I feel I can be a better Christian without it? I mean, if you really stop and think about that, that's very difficult to even imagine us having to do. One of the first things that, that really jumped out at me is the Amish do not worship in church buildings. They actually meet in the houses of the members of their congregation, and they will rotate which house they meet at so that one family isn't constantly burdened with having to have several people at their house. The reason they do this is that they understand the scripture teaches that the members, the people, that is what makes up the church. It is not a building that makes up the church. And they fear that introducing a building into their communities that they can worship in, that people will lose the concept of the, of the individuals being the church, and they'll start putting an emphasis on the building. They'll start putting some kind of focus on the building itself. Therefore, they just don't have it. They decided they would rather meet in people's homes. And if the person's homes are supposed to meet in that, that Sunday is not big enough, they meet in the barn. They do whatever they can, but they avoid a building because they were afraid it would hurt their Christian lives. The dedication that they have, it seems, to their scriptures, whether they're interpreting it correctly or not, to me seems unmatched from any other group that I've ever seen. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we looked at that a little bit this morning. Let's start reading in verse 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. It says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, 
but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable, for an imperishable crown. Therefore run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. What he's talking about there is you bring your life into subjection. You do what's necessary to win this race. If we truly understood the meaning behind this scripture the same way it appears that the Amish do, how much better would our lives be as Christians? Would we be having the difficulties with temptation and sin in our life that some of us may have today? I think it's something we all need to truly think about. Now, there's a, another major teaching that exists within the Amish church. It's one that is strongly, strongly rooted in Scripture that they're very, very good at. Um, they place a lot of emphasis on this, and I think that it's something that we can all greatly learn from. The best way, I think, to explain it, or at least to see how they put this into practice, is let's look at a real-life example. So bear with me through for a minute as I'm going to explain a, a real situation that happened. There was a tragic event that occurred in the Amish community of Nickel Mines in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Now, as I go through this, some of you may remember it because it wasn't very long ago, and it stayed in the media for quite some time. The reasons why it stayed in the media we'll look at in a minute. But on October the 2nd, 2006, a member of that Amish community went in to one of their one-room Amish schoolhouse, the West Nickel Mines School. Many people believe that he had an anger towards God because nine years prior to this, he had lost a daughter of his shortly after birth and never completely recuperated from that and always blamed God for taking one of his children from him. On that day in October in 2006, he entered this schoolhouse, made all the adults leave, made all the boys leave, kept 10 young girls hostage in the schoolhouse. They ended up having a standoff with the police. The day ended simply by having all 10 girls were shot. He took his own life. Five of those girls died. Five of them survived through the shooting. Understandably, is with any kind of school shooting that we ever hear about in society, this made headlines all over the world. A lot of people were outraged in terms of what was going on. However, unlike other tragedies we hear about this, such situations like Columbine we're all aware of, the reasons this stayed in the headlines for such a long time is very different than other situations. While many in the world were simply outraged, they were demanding justice for these victims of these families, or the families of the victims, even though they had no involvement, probably knew nothing about this Amish community, their reaction within the Amish community itself was very, very different to the tragedy. As within most communities, many of these families, they're, they're related to each other, blood relations to each other, and if they're not, they're very good friends. And so their reaction to the families of the victims is, is what we would imagine. There was always somebody with the family. They were there to console them day and night. They were uh, having meals for them. They were helping them maybe provide money to them, helping them do work on their farm, anything they could do to help them get through this situation. What really surprised people, though, is the family of the shooter got the same treatment from that Amish community. There was constantly somebody with the wife and the three children of that man who did this. They were providing meals to them. They were consoling them in their time of loss. They lost their husband and their father. But what really started changing headlines in the media is when it came time for the funerals of these young girls. 
the families of these young girls attended the funeral of the shooter. That completely changed the way the media was looking at this. And they started questioning how in the world could an Amish community do this? How could they basically be so kind to a family who had done something so horrible to their families? And what they started doing is they started questioning the Amish and, and why they would do this. The answer that came from the Amish community, it was a very simple answer, and it was an answer that was very deeply rooted in Scripture. They said forgiveness is commanded from God, period. There was no conditions on that. They must forgive. There's been several books written specifically about this tragedy that happened and looking at, at the Amish reaction to this tragedy. One of those books in particular, I read it a couple years ago, it's called Amish Grace, How Forgiveness Transcended Tragedy. Now the author of this book, he actually went into this town of nickel mines in Pennsylvania and he interviewed the families of some of these victims. One of the parents of one of these girls actually told him, it said the pain of the killer's parents is ten times my own pain. Now whether we agree with that or not is irrelevant, but the author's response to that in the book, and I will quote him on saying this, it said typical Protestant forgiveness theology says God has forgiven you so you should pass it on to other people. The Amish flip it and say, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. In that sense, it leads directly to their salvation. And I end the quote there. So what I just want us to spend a few minutes looking at is which way is right. Are we supposed to be forgiving people when they sin against us because we've been forgiven first? Or if we're unwilling to forgive somebody else, is there even hope of us being forgiven? Let's look at the scriptures for this for a few minutes. The first one, let's look at are we to be forgiving people because God has forgiven us first. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and let's begin reading in verse 12. It says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering." Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you so also must do. According to this passage, we have to be forgiving people because God forgave us first. And that's exactly what it says. Turn with me back a few pages to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and let's begin looking in verse 30 says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So when we look at these two passages, it seems very, very accurate according to the scriptures that we must be forgiving other people because God through Christ forgave us first. Let's look at the other side of that now. What if we are unwilling to forgive people? Do we have any hope of forgiveness coming from God? There's really only one verse that we need to turn to to look at this, and it was the verse that was read for us in our scripture reading this, this evening. Turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, and let's begin reading in verse 24. And it says, Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. 
And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, if you do not forgive, then neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. That's very plainly written. If we do not forgive others when they sin against us, we have no hope of receiving forgiveness from God for the sins that we commit in our lives. According to this verse, our forgiveness that's coming from God, it is not unconditional. There is a condition in order for us to truly receive that forgiveness from God. You know, I think in life many times people try to either ignore this command or they try to rationalize it away in some form or fashion. You know, I think a lot of times people actually say that, yes, I will absolutely forgive somebody as soon as they come to me and apologize. As soon as they come and tell me they're sorry and they come and ask for the forgiveness, I will willingly give them forgiveness. Look back at verse 25 with me again. It says, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him when he asks for forgiveness, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Is that what it says? It doesn't say forgive him as soon as he asks for the forgiveness. It says you forgive him, period. It doesn't put any condition around that. So if we say that, hey, I'm waiting for this person to come to me to apologize for what they've done to me, that's us putting a condition on the commandment of God that God did not put there. He said you forgive them. Otherwise, you will not receive my forgiveness. You know, there's a perfect example of this in the Scripture, and some of you may already be thinking about it. While hanging on that cross, the men that drove the nails into Jesus' hands, that was sitting there beating him mercilessly, that put the crown of thorns on his head and was striking those thorns until they dug into his skull, blood was flowing from his body. Did those people ever try to apologize for what they were doing? Did they seem to show any kind of remorse for the way that they were treating him? As Brother Glenn mentioned this morning, the way that they were simply bullying Jesus. Not a single one of them do we have an indication that truly seemed to have remorse for what they were doing. Yet while hanging on that cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He forgave every one of those people for what they were doing to him, even though not a single one of them came to him and asked for his forgiveness. You know, I think a lot of time people may also think that if they forgive somebody for what they've done, then they're somehow letting them off easy. That they're not going to have to suffer the punishment for what they've done to me if I forgive them. That it just kind of, we just all sweep it under the rug and forget about it then. If we have that mindset towards forgiveness, what that tells us is we don't understand the point behind forgiveness. If we forgive somebody for what they've done to us, that in no way affects the relationship between that person and God. What it does is it affects the relationship between us and God. Just because we forgive somebody for what they've done to us, that doesn't mean they don't have to answer for God anymore for what they've done. They still have to answer to God. They still have to do what is right according to the Bible. But if we are unwilling to forgive them, we now have to answer to God for that. So giving forgiveness to somebody is simply keeping us in a right relationship with God. It is doing what the Bible is teaching us to do. And so when a lot of people in the world, when they looked at this tragedy that happened in the Amish community, and it absolutely was a tragedy. I mean, I couldn't think of anything that would, that would be harder for me to forgive somebody for than what this man done to these families. 
But when people looked at it with perplexion, not understanding why the Amish forgave this man, forgave his family so quickly, when obviously he didn't ask for it. I mean, he took his own life in the incident. The world didn't understand it. But the reason the world didn't understand it is because the world doesn't understand the Scriptures. They do not understand what Jesus had told us that as Christians we must be doing. You know, the Amish did exactly what the Bible commanded them to do. They forgave the man. The world didn't understand that. And it wasn't just in this situation. If you study about it, forgiveness is ingrained into every part of their normal life. Holding grudges, staying angry at people. Now, yes, there are disagreements. There, there is anger and arguments within inside of Amish communities, within inside their churches, just like there is everywhere. We're humans. They're humans. But it's holding on to that grudge and holding on to that anger that simply doesn't seem to exist within Amish communities. The, for, the forgiveness that they have, they truly understand what the Bible is telling us to do as Christians. And I think that we can really learn a lot from that. Now, as I'd mentioned this morning, in order to truly go through everything that I wanted to talk about, this would take a, a dozen sermons to go through. I've tried to squeeze it into two sermons. So obviously, we didn't get to hit every point. You know, we looked this morning a little bit at the history, where they came from. And I think that maybe helps us understand a little bit better their desire to stay separate from society, to be apart from the world physically. We looked a little bit at their belief system. We started looking at ways that what they believe does not coincide with the Scripture, things they teach that is unscriptural, in fact. We've also looked at a couple areas that they're very, very good at, something that we can all learn something from. You know, these are people that have suffered a lot of persecution in their past. They've, they've been treated very unfairly. Whether they're right according to the Scripture or not, society, I would say, has treated them unfairly. However, even though we saw a lot of their harsh backgrounds, the way that they've intermingled their social issues they have within their communities and they've, they've joined it with church doctrine is simply not right according to the Scriptures. That's something that we have to watch in the Lord's church, that if issues start coming up, if we start dictating them from this pulpit, and there is nothing the Bible says about it, either directly or indirectly. What we are simply doing is going down that same path. The church has to understand where its line of authority is at and where it stops at and what things are secular matters that the church has no business being involved in. And issues that we looked at, can you own a car? Can you have electricity in your house? To us, that's obvious, but what other things may pop up around this congregation specifically or anywhere else within the Lord's church that the church tries to dictate and it has no right to do so according to the scripture. The things that we looked at, they're very good at. The way that they are at least willing to give up everything in their lives for what they believe the scripture is telling them to do as a group of people. The way that they are willing to give up every amenity they have, anything that would make comfort in their lives they have willingly set it aside, almost purposely made life difficult for themselves because it felt it would make them better quote-unquote Christians. That it would eliminate temptations from their lives, temptations from their children, things that would lead down a path that they didn't need to go. Are we willing to do that in our lives? If there's something that's causing us problems, are we willing to simply eliminate it from our lives? And a lot of things we may say is, I can't eliminate I rely on that too much. We can eliminate anything from our lives we want to. It's just a choice of whether or not we want to do it.
and the fact that they have taken forgiveness much further than any other group of people I've ever seen throughout the world. The way they were able to forgive in the tragedy that we talked about, in every part of their lives, they do exactly as the scripture says. They fully understand that if you do not forgive, as the Bible says, then our Father in heaven will not forgive us. Do we have issues with other people that we're around, that we're carrying chips on our shoulders, that we're carrying grudges against people because we're waiting for them to come and apologize, or we simply can't get over what they did to us? According to the Bible, we have to take care of those situations. You know, the Bible doesn't command that we understand or we know anything about the doctrines of other religions. There is no requirement for us to go and study what somebody else believes. But as we talked about this morning, I believe there are advantages to us if we do that. If we understand how a group got to where they're at today, certain things that they believe, how they started going down that path and what led them to where they are today, it will help us to start recognizing red flags if we start going down that same path. If we make a decision within this congregation and it leads us a certain direction, there should be a red flag that goes off for us that says, hey, we know such and such group had done the same thing, and over time, let's see where that's led them to. Let's back up for a minute. Let's, let's relook at the situation and see how we truly need to handle this according to the Bible. You know, the purpose of the sermons this morning and this evening, yes, I, I think all of us, myself included, we've learned something about a group of people that some of us probably didn't know a whole lot about. But what we're really wanting to do out of this is we're wanting to find areas that we can apply to our lives to make us a better Christian, a better follower of Christ. You know, one of the first, command, the first things that the Scriptures commands for us to do is we are to separate ourselves from the world. We are not to be conformed to this world. Maybe not in the same way that the Amish have done it in physically removing themselves from society. But a simple way of doing that the Bible commands that we are to be a child of God. Once we change our mindset and the way that we look at life, the way we integrate Scripture into our life, the physical actions in our life are going to come naturally. But for us to not be conformed to the world, a simple way is to become a child of God. The Bible tells us very simply how you do that. We have everything we need to know right here. The Bible tells us it's complete, and it thoroughly equips us for every good work. We have everything we need. John chapter 20 and verse 31, it says you must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Continues on in Luke 13 and 3, it says you must repent of the sins in your life. You must turn from the errors that you have in your life, change those to the way that God wants us to be living. Romans 10.10, 10, as we mentioned this morning, says confession is made by our mouths unto salvation. We must confess before others that we want to be a child of God's, that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then we must come into contact with that blood of Christ through immersion and baptism, Mark 16, 16. You know, the Bible also teaches that we can fall away. That once you're baptized, you're not guaranteed a ticket to heaven, if you want to put it that way. You know, Jesus taught the parable of the prodigal son. When that son left his father's home, it was for not the right reasons, for wrong reasons that he left. But when that son started coming back, his father was standing there watching for him, waiting for him to come with open arms, and the second he saw him, he ran to him and he embraced him. Our father's doing the same thing. If we have left the father, if we've got off the path that we're supposed to be on, our father in heaven is sitting there with open arms waiting to embrace us. He is watching for us to come back. 
But the thing we must understand from that parable is that prodigal son had to come home first. He had to take the step to go home. Then his father accepted him. If we've got off that path with God that we're supposed to be on, we have to come back to him. He will welcome us back with open arms, but we have to go back to him. So if we've never put on Christ in baptism, if we've never come into contact with that blood of Christ, you need to take care of that quickly. We can't stress it enough. If you're not a child of God, you will not go to heaven. But if you've got off that path of what you're supposed to be on, just like that father of the prodigal son, God's waiting for us to come home. So if you have issues that need to be taken care of tonight, we ask that you let us help you. Come as we stand and as we sing.